I'm Fanula Dowling from the Centre for Extramural Studies at the University of Cape Town. It gives me great pleasure to introduce this Fine Minds lecture on Our Skin and the Things We Do to It, presented by one of the most popular lecturers at our recent summer school. Lester Davids was appointed Associate Professor in the Department of Human Biology at UCT. He established the Redox Laboratory Research Group, which studies skin cancers, wound healing in burns, and the biological effect of skin lightening practices. He has presented his research at national and international conferences and is an NRF-rated investigator. In this Fine Minds lecture, molecular cell biologist Professor Lester Davids explains the anatomy and physiology of the skin and the importance of pigmentation and of skin care. Our skin and the things we do to it examines what happens when things go wrong and how skin cancers develop. Coming out of his lecture theatre in January, one of our participants told me that every South African should listen to Professor David's talking about skin. Well, this is your chance. If I were to challenge you to think of an idiom or common phrase that involved the word skin, I'm convinced that you'd be able to supply me with one within a few seconds of the request. Some would blurt out almost instantaneously, give me some skin. Others may favour no skin of my nose, whilst others may recall by the skin of the teeth, which personally just is a strange saying, as there is no skin on one's teeth, but I guess that is how close the call would be. You see, fascination with human skin has stood the test of time. As a biologist, I've been very privileged to have had the opportunity to study the skin for many years, and I hope that as you listen, you will share my fascination as our journey ebbs and flows and we discover this reflective canvas that defines not only first impressions, but delves a bit deeper to uncover us as fellow humans. From time to time through this lecture, I will sprinkle it with some interesting fast facts, and here is one of them. Fast fact. The skin is the body's largest organ. Two millimeters thick, two square meters of it, approximately 20 square feet, if it was opened up, and its average weight is about four kilograms. We shed the upper layers of our skin every day, and in a year, we would shed approximately 1.5 kilograms of dead skin cells. In the words of a friend and colleague, Professor Nina Jablonski, Professor of Anthropology at the Pennsylvania State University in the US, and I quote from her book, our skin reflects our age, our ancestry, our state of health, our cultural identity, and much of what we want the world to know about us. She goes on to say, our skin is not just a passive covering that betrays our age or physiological state. It is a potentially ever-changing personal tapestry that tells the world who we are or who we want to be." Close quote. Unfortunately, skin color has also divided humanity because of its damaging association with concepts of race and societal issues associated with it. Suffice to say, that topic is for another conversation. Let's start then with a brief description of human skin. At this juncture, I would like you, as the listener, to glance at your skin of your form. What you will see there is a somewhat pitted surface containing hair and of course, some of us will have a few folds, otherwise called wrinkles. 
You may also possess a few dark spots. This macroscopic image already suggests a few interesting facts relating to the skin. Firstly, the pitted structures are hair follicles, which cover just about our entire skin surface, except for areas such as the eyelids, the palm of our hands, and the soles of our feet. Hair is extremely important for the skin. Not only is it an evolutionary protective appendage that covers the skin and protects it from the harmful rays of the sun, but very importantly too, it is a physiological appendage in that when the skin is exposed at a very low temperature, the hairs rise and stand erect to trap a layer of air above the skin's surface. This layer of air then warms up and increases the surface temperature of the skin in an attempt to restore it to its normal body temperature of around 37 degrees Celsius. In environments when the temperature is very high, the skin once again physiologically adapts by keeping the hair flat, increasing the blood flow towards the surface in order to rid the body of heat, as well as activate the sweat glands in the upper layer of the skin. The sweat, or sebum, is expelled onto the surface of the skin, and as the air moves over it, it cools down the surface of the skin, thus restoring it to its original temperature. The spots you may have noticed are called nevi, more commonly called moles, or they could be a collection of lighter spots called freckles. Either one relates to small accumulations or clusters of cells that contain color pigment. We'll get back to pigment in a short while. If one were to microscopically view the skin, you would see a two millimeter thick three-dimensional, triple-layered structure, with each layer having its own important structure and function. For the purpose of this lecture, I will briefly mention the three layers and then delve a bit deeper into the top two layers, which have more relevance to the topics that we will discuss. The layer nearest to the surface, and indeed the one that you would be looking at, and the one that is exposed to the elements, is called the epidermis. Epi, meaning top or outside, and dermis, meaning of the skin. Just beneath this is the dermis, or the dermal layer. And the deepest layer, the third one, which is quite deep in the skin, is called the hypodermis. Although I'll only be concentrating on the epidermis and the dermis, the hypodermis is as an important layer, as it functions to maintain the fatty component of the skin, adding to the cushioning effect of the skin. Biologically, these layers are very distinct and very easy to identify. The epidermis, which varies in thickness depending on the location of the body, contains two types of cells and sweat glands, making it very distinct from the lower dermal layer, which contains one predominant cell type, the fibroblasts, nerves, glands, and most identifiably, blood vessels. A wound of the skin, therefore, that does not bleed, has not penetrated the dermis. This becomes an important distinction for tattoo artists, for example, who will be giving their clients a temporary or permanent tattoo. Temporary tattoos therefore use an ink that only penetrates the epidermis or the upper layer, and as the ink-filled skin cells divide, they move towards the surface and will eventually slough off, thus removing the tattoo. This could take a period of one to three months, and these are temporary tattoos. Permanent tattoos, on the other hand, are injected into the dermis and are expected to bleed upon inking, indicating to the tattoo artist that they are safely in the dermal portion of the skin. Caution, however, must 
year be exercised because needles and ink used must be clean and sterile as these interact directly with one's blood. These tattoos are permanent. The large canvas of the skin allows a wide variety of images of varying sizes, colors and complexity to be boldly scripted on all parts as a reminder of a significant life event. To the surprise of uninked people, people who choose to get tattoos generally do not regret their decision and their tattoos are undertaken after much deliberation and forethought. Fast fact. Today, tattoos are the most popular form of permanent skin art with an estimated 80 million people in industrialized countries sporting some form of ink. The epidermis comprises two cell types, the keratinocytes and the melanocytes. The keratinocytes are by far in the majority and as the name suggests, produce a protein called keratin, which contributes to the elasticity and the toughness of the skin's structure. It is also present in hair in different forms, contributing to its toughness and elasticity. The two cell types, the keratinocytes and melanocytes, as I've mentioned, exist in ratios in the skin. There are roughly 36 keratinocytes to every one melanocyte throughout the upper part of the epidermal layer. This ratio drops to about six keratinocytes to one melanocyte as we move down through the epidermis towards the lower dermis. Why is this important, you may ask? Well, the melanocytes are those cells in the body that produces the skin's color or pigment. This pigment is called melanin and is made in the cell and transferred via these arms called dendrites to the surrounding keratinocytes. An analogy here would be that the melanocytes therefore represent a pigment factory, successfully making the pigment, packaging it into bags called melanosomes, and then sending it down the dendrites as if on a conveyor belt to be transferred to the surrounding keratinocytes. Accumulations of these bags of pigment in the keratinocytes translate into the skin's color. Scientists had long wondered whether lighter skin therefore contain less melanocytes while the darker shades have an increased number. Biologically then, an experiment was conducted where skin was removed from four different skin color types and the melanocytes counted. The answer? Each skin type contained roughly the same number of melanocytes, proving unequivocally that it is only the increased production of the bags of pigment that contribute to skin color and not the numbers of pigment producing cells. Certain environmental conditions can certainly speed up the number of bags made and transferred. Ultraviolet, UV, radiation remains one of the primary accelerators of pigment production. This process we call tanning. To add a further level of complexity, the melanin pigment is strictly controlled by an enzyme inside these cells. In fact, the control is so tight that without enzyme function, we get no melanin or pigment production. All other processes, however, in this factory occur normally in that the bags are made and transferred, but they are empty. They do not contain pigment. This raises the next issue, and that is if a condition in this case, a genetic mutation, wipes out this master regulator enzyme of pigmentation, then no skin color is produced. This is a condition called albinism. 
I am sure that we have all encountered or at least seen an albino. The common features associated with him are light brown to gold hair color, white skin and red, very sensitive eyes. This is because all the pigment is lacking in the skin, in the follicles of the hair, which normally produces hair color, and the retina of the eye. The red eyes are in fact a reflection of the ocular blood vessels at the back of the eyeball. Another condition associated with skin pigmentation is vitiligo. Unlike albinism, vitiligo is due to a genetic mutation. In this condition, the melanocytes, the actual pigment factories, begin to die off. The reasons for their death have baffled many a scientist even now. Research has suggested that oxidative stress, an overactive immune system, and other factors such as high frictional areas of the body, like the elbows and knees, can trigger the death of these melanocytic cells. The result is that the melanocytes die, leaving a white patch on the skin. Naturally, this is more pronounced in darker-skinned individuals, but nothing thus far has suggested that any specific color of skin is more prone to developing vitiligo. These patches can spread as more melanocytes die off, but the good news is that treatment does exist. A mild corticosteroid cream can be applied to the areas to reduce the spread. There is also ultraviolet light therapy that has been shown to reduce or even reverse the effect. The best advice here, if you suspect a particular spot or area of your skin that may look vitiligenous, is to consult your local dermatologist for a clinical opinion. Fast fact. Yes, Michael Jackson had vitiligo. It started on his hand and hence the white glove. And after continuing to spread, he was offered to remove the pigment from the rest of his body. The result, a whiter looking Michael Jackson. Let me stress right here that neither albinism nor vitiligo are contagious in any way and scientifically and clinically have not been correlated to lifestyle habits such as smoking or drinking. Moreover, neither of them, despite the fact that the skin is left with reduced or no pigmentation, has been shown to lead to an increase in skin cancers. The pigment produced by the melanocytes not only color our skin, but have a more defined biological role to play. You see, the pigment is called melanin, which is a complex chemical structure, making it virtually indestructible within the cells. The one most incredible feature is that this melanin absorbs ultraviolet light. In other words, sunlight comprising of ultraviolet A, B and C, which can destroy cellular DNA and thus kill cells, is absorbed by the melanin. Biologically, therefore, cells counter the harmful rays of the sun by increasing the production of melanin so that the DNA can be spared the damage and resultant mutations. Is darker skin then more protected than fairer skin? The answer is inherently yes, but we shouldn't be fooled into thinking that darker skinned folk need no protection from ultraviolet rays. The answer is that the amount of UV we are exposed to, particularly in the summer months in the southern hemisphere, is heavily laden with UV, which causes repeated damage to DNA, which could eventually result in skin cancers, no matter what your skin shade is. 
Ironically, however, we cannot do without UVB. You see, UVB is needed for production of vitamin D. Vitamin D, also known as the sunshine vitamin, occurs in the skin and has several forms. Vitamin D3, for example, is made in vertebrates, whereas vitamin D2 is the primary form found in plants. Its main function in the skin is that it allows us to absorb calcium from the diet, which of course, as your mother would have told you, builds strong teeth and bones. However, vitamin D, although present, is not in a form that can be used, and therefore we need UV to change its structure so that the body can use it for its main functions, as I have described. We therefore need to spend some time in the sun because not only does it help create the vitamin D that is useful, it also activates other hormone pathways that make us holistically feel better. Of course, as with most things that the body needs, a lack of vitamin D leads to a drastic reduction in the amount of calcium and may lead to a number of problems including a reduction in a person's reproductive capabilities later in life. For children, a lack of vitamin D could lead to calcium deficiencies, which will manifest in bone disorders such as rickets, where the bones become brittle and can bow under the body's own weight. In places in the northern hemisphere, where there is a lack of sun for most of the year or reduced UV for larger parts of the year, the problem with vitamin D deficiency is very real, and children are recommended to orally take vitamin D supplements to make up for the lack of sunshine. Let me now elaborate a bit on skin cancers. Skin cancers are primarily caused by excessive and repeated exposure to UV commonly during the early parts of our lives. Although the skin has an incredible way of correcting mutations that may be caused by UV, repeated mutations sometimes get missed and manifest into cancer forming or carcinogenic mutations. South Africa has the second highest incidence of skin cancer in the world after Australia and it is estimated that more than 700 South Africans die each year due to skin cancer. Skin cancer itself occurs in three main forms. Two, which are associated with the keratinocytes in the epidermis, are known as basal and squamous cell carcinomas. Basal cell carcinomas represent the most common skin cancer worldwide and make up 75 to 85% of all skin cancers. Squamous cell carcinomas, on the other hand, make up approximately 10% of skin cancers, but is the most likely to invade other tissues and lead to death if left untreated. Melanoma, which arises from the melanocyte in the skin, represents only 5% of skin cancers worldwide, but is responsible for an incredible 85% of all deaths related to skin cancer. It is an aggressive, fast-spreading cancer that needs to be recognized early and treated immediately. Treatment of cancers are predominated by surgical excision, a cutting out, followed by bouts of chemo and radiation therapy. That is the gold standard of treatment at the moment. Other, more effective treatments for these horrific cancers are currently in the process of being tested by a number of big research centers around the world. Without elaborating much further, the best advice would be that if you see a spot on your skin and it is growing, itching, bleeding or spreading, 
it is essential to visit your local dermatologist or hospital for a consultation which will offer the best advice for treatment. There are, however, seven golden rules with respect to skin cancer that we can abide by. Rule 1. Melanomas are potentially fatal if not diagnosed and treated early. A quick rule of thumb relating to melanoma is the ABCD rule. If the spot, mark or mole on your skin is A for asymmetrical, that is changing shape and not nice and round, then it is time to watch it and to visit your local dermatologist. The B stands for border. If the border of the mole is not neat but has a jagged edge, it should be looked at. C for color. Normal moles generally rem remain the same color, but if the color changes, then have it looked at. And finally, D for diameter. If the mole or nevus starts to grow, then it is also a good idea to have it checked out. Rule number two, see your doctor or dermatologist immediately if you suspect something is wrong on your skin. Do not wait. Rule three, avoid sunburn. Rule four, avoid sunbeds at all costs and do not be fooled by great marketing campaigns claiming a brilliant tan just before big events like matric balls. Rule number five, Always apply sun protection factor of 30 or more, at least 30 minutes before sun exposure, and avoid sun exposure at all costs between 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Rule number six, always wear sun protective clothing. Remember that ultraviolet rays can penetrate certain clothes. This is particularly important for younger kids. And rule number seven, Spread the word. Do not be afraid to suggest to someone that they have had enough sun exposure or that some spot on their skin looks different. We often need an objective view. Remember, if recognized early, cancer can be beaten. Another topic that is very close to my heart is burn-related injuries. The numbers are staggering. On a global scale, 300 people die annually of burns and burn-related injuries. 90% of these are in low- to middle-income countries, with the African continent displaying the highest number after Asia. 3.2% of all South Africans, approximately 2 million people at the last census, are affected by burn-related injuries, and 50% of these are under 20 years old. South Africa has about 700 cases per year, whereas in Africa, there are approximately 1,200 cases reported per year. In South Africa currently, we have three specialist burn units, one for pediatric cases at Red Cross War Memorial Hospital, and two that serve adult patients, one at Tigerberg Hospital in Cape Town and the other at the Baraguanath Hospital in Johannesburg. Burns are classified as first, second, and third degree burns. First degree burns are considered those that only affect the epidermis or the upper layer of the skin. These burns are normally superficial and may heal with a small scar and or slight change in the pigment color. Second degree burns affect the epidermis and the dermal portion of the skin. These burns are more severe and affect the nerves, the blood vessels and the cells of the skin. If not treated well, they will lead to infected areas of the skin and massive consequent scarring.
Third degree burns affect all three layers and often stretch right down to the bone and muscle. These could be fatal, take a very long time to heal, need to be grafted with normal skin and heal to form massive scarring or keloids, very often together with the need of physiotherapy to regain that elasticity and stretch of the new skin. Sadly, burn injuries go largely unnoticed in our country. It was, however, shot to prominence a number of years ago with the cases of Isabella Puppy, well known to us, Kruger, a three-year-old that was pinned by a firelighter explosion, and the second case of Saleri Masheko, a five-year-old, burnt with hot water. Puppy experienced burns on more than 75% of her total body surface, and both she and Saleri received cloned skin from an American company. The interesting aspect of this cutting-edge research was that the initial skin biopsies that were taken were taken from their own skins, sent over to the U.S., where it was cloned and expanded into sheets of skin, which they could then transport back to South Africa and regraft back onto their bodies. For both Pippi and Siliwe, life continues, but it is a daily battle with scarring and lots of physiotherapy. But thanks to the modern miracle of research and clinical skill, they are alive and living active little lives. It was, in fact, the story of Isabella, Pippi, and Silewe Masheko that inspired my own interest in taking skin and regrowing it into forming a, a sheet of cells that we could potentially graft onto burn patients in South Africa. And so with that as my aim to strive forward, I then started the Redox Laboratory. And our main aim was to remove skin from patients. And we had indeed done a pilot study on this where we removed a small bit of skin. We then took it back to the lab broke it up into its individual components. And now, remember that I had explained that the skin has three layers. The top layer, the epidermis, had those two cell types, the keratinocytes and the melanocytes. We then could separate out these cell types. We could grow them in a laboratory, sterile, remembering too that everything can affect the growth of the cells and we, we really had to be very careful and so after four long years of research, we eventually found a way of growing these cells, adding them together and creating a sheet of skin cells that we could then replace onto humans who had been burnt. And so right now in South Africa, we busy with a study and this is very exciting for us where we are looking at five burn victims and we are going to apply the application that we had finalized in the lab in order to replace the skin of these burn patients as normal cells back onto the burn wounds. These wounds would then be covered with a dressing and we will watch them very carefully over the next four or five weeks after grafting them onto the skins so that we can make sure that the cells have had actually 
taken onto the wounds and have continued to grow normally. This would then be followed by lots of rounds of physiotherapy where the physiotherapist will in fact stretch and make the skin a lot more supple so that the cells actually start to not only bind together but start to produce the factors and all the components that a normal skin has. So, for example, the dermal component that I had mentioned earlier, the dermal cell component, the fibroblasts, produce collagen. The skin of the patient will still have their own resident fibroblasts, but this will interact with the replaced keratinocytes and melanocytes, and we are hoping that keeping in mind that the melanocytes and keratinocytes exist in a ratio in the epidermis, we are hoping that as we replace it in that ratio, that not only will the fibroblasts start to produce collagen, thus keeping the skin supple, elastic, and durable, but that the keratinocytes and the melanocytes interact with each other in a very happy medium way so that they can produce not only the keratin, which increases the elasticity and the toughness of the outside of the skin, but that the melanocytes will do their normal factory job, and that is to produce the pigment that is required. If you have looked or you have seen a burnt patient, you will very quickly notice that the, the normal skin is very different to the healed, scarred skin of the burns. And the most prominent feature is a lack of pigmentation. And so, whereas the company in the U.S. with the puppy and salivae instances only reproduced the keratinocytes, we've gone slightly further over the last four years and have introduced the melanocytes in a ratio that we believe would start to pigment the skin and return the burnt skin to its original color over a period of time. Let's next talk about what I would like to coin as the dichotomy of skin practices. On the one hand, lighter-skinned individuals strive to get darker through various means, while the other side of the coin has darker-skinned individuals looking to become lighter. Let us briefly explore both of these phenomena. So I often get asked, how does one tan effectively? Effective tanning depends on one's skin type. There are five to six different dermatologically classified skin types, with each having a different tanning outcome. The best way to illustrate this is via the minimal erythemal dose, also called MED. One MED refers to the amount of sun exposure in minutes which causes reddening and consequent melanin-induced darkening. It follows then that the lighter the skin, the shorter the MED is. A simple generic method of calculating your MED is to expose an area of unexposed skin to the sun and note the time it takes till your skin begins to tingle. At that point, cover the area and note the time it took. This will roughly represent the time you need to induce an effective activation of melanin production and a tanning response for your skin type. Please note, however, that certain skin types do not tan. Instead, 
they will redden and this will dissipate over a couple of days. A cautionary note here too is that excessive tanning burns the skin, damages the DNA and could lead to future mutations and cancers. What is SPF? I often get asked. SPF refers to the sunscreen protection factor which is a guide as to how well a sunscreen may offer extra protection. Let's use an example. If it is surmised an SPF of 20 may offer 20 times the protection, this translates into a person being able to spend 20 times longer in the sun than without the sunscreen. Well, this is unreasonable. And the better rule of thumb is to suggest that the SPF factor simply refers to the amount of minutes that one could theoretically spend longer in the sun before one MED is reached. So, if your MED is say 10 minutes, with an SPF 20 applied, you now have roughly protection for about 30 minutes in the sun. I want to stress here that this is an oversimplified generalized rule and lots of factors like skin type, the time of day, and other environmental factors such as wind, salt water, sweating, etc. all contribute to affect the protection of the sunscreen. Even the kind of sunscreen matters in that certain ones are sun reflective. Those will contain a metal in them, for example, titanium or zinc oxide based creams. And there are others that are called UV absorptive that may contain antioxidants and other UV-absorbing compounds. Fast fact. Sunbeds are not the answer at all. A large number of European countries have now banned them completely and or slapped an 18-year-old restriction on them. They are a horrible combination of very high levels of UVA and UVB causing severe damage to the skin. Fast fact. From the 1st of April 2017, all virgin active gymnasiums have removed sunbeds from their franchises. Well done, virgin active. It is always advisable to stay out of the sun between 12 and 3 p.m. and always apply reputable sunscreens that contain anti-UVA and anti-UVB components. Remember too that one needs to apply sunscreens approximately 30 minutes before you go into the sun and that salt water, sweating and showering rapidly dilutes the effect of sunscreens and these should therefore be reapplied. The reverse side of the dichotomy of skin practices, as I like to coin it, is the concept of skin lightening and or skin bleaching practices. This concept has become a global phenomenon and is defined as a deliberate lightening of the skin through the use of compounds that inhibit the formation of melanin or skin color pigment. The majority of these compounds target that main regulator enzyme called tyrosinase, which not only regulates, but if absent, does not cause melanin to be formed. Fast fact. The tyrosinase enzyme is the same one that occurs in fruit, such as apples and pears, and is activated once the skin of the fruit is broken, which leads to the browning of the flesh of the fruit. The concept of lightening one's skin is not a new one. Way back when, women in the Far East aspired to lightness, as it was perceived then that the lighter a human's skin was, the more regal and thus 
privileged she was. This same concept was also introduced in India, where a high caste system was associated with a fairer skin. Moreover, this was associated with an elevation in social standing and translated into better economic stability through better jobs and even more options with regards to choosing marriage partners. Fast forward to the present day, and in the West, the trend of skin lightening continued to somehow be associated with wealth and privilege and celebrity status. This phenomenon quickly influenced youth culture and obviously created a lucrative market for startup and cosmetic companies. In South Africa, with a majority of darker-skinned population and a racial overtone that white is right, the market was ripe for the introduction of creams and cosmetics that could be effective at lightening the skin. Unfortunately, there was a severe lack of regulation in the early 1970s and towards the late 1970s, this led to the explosion of skin lighteners and skin bleachers and whitening agents all over the country. Even more unfortunate was that these were not via the channels of reputable cosmetic houses, but backyard concoctions that included terrible compounds such as hydroquinones, a benzene derivative, mercury and combinations of retinoids and corticosteroids. The result was a large number of cases where facial skin was heavily bent and irreversibly damaged. Although this led to the banning of these substances in the early 1980s, inexplicably these compounds are still on the market today and have found themselves incorporated into creams sold on the informal station and community markets all over South Africa. A cautionary note here is that there are creams that are sold without inserts explaining dosages or application regimes. In addition, these creams reflect and the inserts that are absent show that they have no ingredients nor list their sources and whilst I understand that everyone has a right to make a choice of what they apply to their skins, I would like to encourage you to make an informed choice because the consequences could be devastating and irreversible. The current trends in skin lightening very recently in South Africa have seen certain celebrities use intravenous drips of a compound called glutathione to lighten their skins. This practice, originating out of the Far East, uses the premise that glutathione, a natural antioxidant produced by the body in larger quantities, leads to skin lightening and rejuvenation. And while this may be the case, the strong message is that the long-term consequences of glutathione use and its systemic effects on the organs of the body remain unknown. Physiologically, we know that the body uses the maxim of everything in moderation, but this is a case of large amounts of a particular substance at each session without really knowing the consequences. This in itself is very troubling. In conclusion, the mosaic that we call human skin is an incredible canvas reflective of the essence in part of what makes us who we are. Even though we expose it, scratch it, paint it, stretch it and mark it, it has remained tough and durable and has and will continue to serve us well. My parting words to you are these. Love the skin you're in. It's the only one we've got. 
Thank you for listening. I've got you under my skin. I've got you deep in the heart of me. You're so deep in my heart that you're really a part of me. And I've got you under my skin. I've tried so not to give in. You know I said to myself this affair ain't gonna go so well. But why should I try to resist when baby I know so well that I've got you away under my skin. I would sacrifice anything come what might for the sake of having you near in spite of a warning voice comes in the night and repeats in my ear don't you know you fool you never can win use your mentality step up to reality but each time I do just the thought of you makes me stop before I begin cause I've got you you're under my skin Sacrifice anything come what might For the sake of having you near In spite of a warning voice That comes in the night and repeats How it yells in these ears Don't you know you fool No chance to win Why not choose your mentality Wake up, step up to reality Just the thought of you makes me stop just before I begin Because I've got you under my skin And I love you under my skin
gentlemen of the class of 97 wear sunscreen if I could offer you only one tip for the future sunscreen would be it the long-term benefits of sunscreen have been proved by scientists whereas the rest of my advice has no basis more reliable than my own meandering experience. I will dispense this advice now. Enjoy the power and beauty of your youth. Oh, never mind. You will not understand the power and beauty of your youth until they fade it. But trust me, in 20 years, you look back at photos of yourself and recall in a way you can't grasp now how much possibility lay before you and how fabulous you really looked. You are not as fat as you imagine. Don't worry about the future. Or worry, but know that worrying is as effective as trying to solve an algebra equation by chewing bubblegum. The real troubles in your life are apt to be things that never crossed your worried mind. The kind that blindsides you at 4 p.m. on some idle Tuesday. Do one thing every day that scares you. Sing. Don't be reckless with other people's hearts. Don't put up with people who are reckless with yours. Floss. Don't waste your time on jealousy. Sometimes you're ahead. Sometimes you're behind. The race is long. And in the end, it's only with yourself. 
Remember compliments you receive. Forget the insults. If you succeed in doing this, tell me how. Keep your old love letters. Throw away your old bank statements. Stretch. Don't feel guilty if you don't know what you want to do with your life. The most interesting people I know didn't know at 22 what they wanted to do with their lives. Some of the most interesting 40-year-olds I know still don't. Get plenty of calcium. Be kind to your knees. You'll miss them when they're gone. Maybe you'll marry. Maybe you won't. Maybe you'll have children. Maybe you won't. Maybe you'll divorce at 40. Maybe you'll dance the funky chicken on your 75th wedding anniversary. Whatever you do, don't congratulate yourself too much. Or berate yourself either. Your choices are half chance. So are everybody else's. Enjoy your body. Use it every way you can. Don't be afraid of it or what other people think of it. It's the greatest instrument you'll ever own. Dance. Even if you have nowhere to do it but in your own living room. Read the directions, even if you don't follow them. Do not read beauty magazines. They will only make you feel ugly. Brother and sister, together we'll make it through. Someday a spirit will take you and guide you there. To know your parents. You never know when they'll be gone for good. Be nice to your siblings. They're your best link to your past and the people most likely to stick with you in the future. Understand that friends come and go, but with a precious few you should hold on. Work hard to bridge the gaps in geography and lifestyle, because the older you get, more you need the people you knew when you were young. Live in New York City once, but leave before it makes you hard. Live in Northern California once, but leave before it makes you soft. Travel. Accept certain inalienable truths. Prices will rise, politicians will philander, you too will get old. And when you do, you'll fantasize that when you were young, Prices were reasonable, politicians were noble, and children respected their elders. Respect your elders. Don't expect anyone else to support you. Maybe you have a trust fund, maybe you'll have a wealthy spouse, but you never know when either one might run out. Don't mess too much with your hair, or by the time you're 40, it will look 85. Be careful whose advice you buy. But be patient with those who supply it. Advice is a form of nostalgia. Dispensing it is a way of fishing the past from the disposal, wiping it off, painting over the ugly parts, and recycling it for more than it's worth. But trust me, on the sunscreen. 